0: Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 72, What's in a Name?, in which we hear something of the history of how we name inorganic compounds. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash thehistoryofchemistry. After talking about the controversies over naming some artificial elements, and then about the history of IUPAC, and we are leaving the 1960s and beginning to enter the 1970s, I thought maybe it was time to discuss how chemists name compounds But a bit of the history behind this. Up until the 1780s, chemical compounds were named pretty much because of their properties or sources. So gases were called airs because there still wasn't a clear way to distinguish a specific gas from general atmospheric air up until the 18th century. And some of these airs have totally unrecognizable names to us now. I will give an old name and then the modern name to help you. Alkaline air was ammonia because it was, well, basic. Vital air, also called deflogisticated air, because it was necessary to breathe, is now oxygen. Mephitic air, because it doesn't support breathing, is nitrogen. Many solutions were called aqua, from Latin, water, even though they weren't just water. So there was aqua fortis, literally strong water, now nitric acid, aqua regia, literally royal water, which is a mixture of nitric and hydrochloric acids able to dissolve the royal metal, that is, gold. Soft materials were often called butter, such as butter of antimony, now antimony trichloride, butter of arsenic, now arsenic trichloride, butter of zinc, now zinc chloride. Some calxes, which we now call oxides, were referred to as crocuses. There is crocus of antimony, now an impure antimony oxy-sulfide; crocus of copper, now copper-2-sulfide, Crocus of lead, now called lead-2-4-oxide. Of course, if you are in the art world, you probably have heard of the varieties of pigments, such as Arnodon's green, now chromium-3-phosphate, barium-white, now barium-sulfate, and King's yellow, now arsenic-3-sulfide. I could go on for more than an episode, but you get the idea. The list of compounds is immense, even several centuries ago, and the idea that they have a chemical formula or composition was a very new, radical idea. Instead, chemists used names that told something about their appearance or source. So, upon formulating the antiphlogistic theory, that is, oxygen, not phlogiston, is what chemists deal with for combustion, Antoine Lavoisier and his buddies, Louis de Morveau, Claude Louis Berthollet, and Antoine Fourcroy, published under the auspices of the Académie des Sciences in 1787 their Methode de Nomenclature Chimique, or in English, Method of Chemical Nomenclature Historians of science agree that this book is the fundamental source of modern chemical nomenclature, especially for inorganic compounds. Most historians believe that it was a radical shift of view, but there are a few, such as Wolfgang Lefebvre, who say merely that it is a transitional document to modern chemical naming. Either way, it did give us something new, for it names compounds based on their internal composition, not on their source or discoverer or color. Lefebvre notes, the method's taxonomic table presents the first taxonomic system of chemical substances in history that classifies consistently according to the composition of substances. So, how did it work? It was something like biological taxonomy, invented by Carl Linnaeus in the 1730s and 1740s, but for chemical substances. There were some major classifications of chemicals. One, simple substances, perhaps something like an Aristotelian element, but including light, heat, idealized oxygen, and idealized hydrogen. Two. Elements as we define them, such as phosphorus, sulfur, and carbon. 3. Metals. 4. Earths. 5. alkalis. They further divided these five classifications into how they combined with heat, oxygen, and so on. In reality, it was still related in many ways to previous phlogistic chemistry but with new names. As to how the names were set up, the goal was to have one name for one substance, and describe its chemical parts. All chemical substances were binary, of two parts, or ternary, of three parts. Acids, as understood in Lavoisier's day, were made of oxygen and a non-metal, with the word acid, and a specific descriptor for that acid, carbonic, sulfuric, phosphoric describing the non-metal element. For those specific acids of a non-metal with less oxygen, he used the suffix us, O-U-S, and for those acids with more, the suffix ic, I-C. An example is sulfurous acid versus sulfuric acid. Another set of binary compounds were metals plus oxygen, which he called oxides you took the metal's name and added oxide. So you can have lead oxide, silver oxide, tin oxide. For those binary compounds of metals plus other nonmetals, you use the suffix "-et", but that was soon changed to "-ide", I-D-E. Thus, there is lead sulfide, silver sulfide, tin sulfide. Ternary compounds included salts made when acids were added to bases. You named them with the starting acid and used the name of the metal. So, for example, lead nitrate from nitric acid, iron sulfate from sulfuric acid. The whole thing was so obvious and easy that one of the authors, de Morveau, said, quote, "...no one will fail to perceive..." At the first glance, all the advantages of such a nomenclature, which, while indicating various substances, at the same time defines them, recalls their constituent parts, classes them in order of their composition, and to a certain extent draws attention to the proportions that cause the variations in their properties. The argument for and against atoms wasn't necessary here, and chemical analysis was sufficiently primitive that this was enough in the late 1700s. But the science of analytical chemistry ramped up in the next half century, as did the number of organic compounds that were discovered and synthesized. The new method gradually caught on, but there were still books published around the turn of the 19th century with multiple names for a single compound. One example I found by W. Bouchon on Home Medicine, published in London in 1790, had all these names for what we now call mercury-2 oxide. Red oxide of mercury, red pulvis solaris, pulvis serpentum, mercurius precipitatus, hydrargyri nitrico-oxidum, hydrargyri oxidum rubrum, deutoxide of mercury, binoxide of mercury, peroxide of mercury, and calx of mercury. The Scottish chemist Thomas Thompson in 1804 published a paper on an improved nomenclature for oxides and acids to include the number of oxygen atoms in the formula. His own example uses lead oxide. The least amount of oxygen in the oxide... He called "protoxide of lead." The maximum amount of oxygen would be peroxide of lead. Intermediate oxides are dutoxide of lead, trioxide of lead, etc. We still hear of hydrogen peroxide, which has more oxygen than regular water, but not the others. Berzelius did something similar by naming compounds as suboxides, least oxygen, oxides, medium amount of oxygen and peroxides, most amount of oxygen. The German chemist Hermann Kopp wrote a four-volume set, Geschichte der Chemie, on the history of chemistry through the 1840s. In volume two, toward the end of the book, he included a chapter called Geschichte der chemischen Nomenklatur und Zeichenlehre, or History of Chemical Nomenclature and Symbol Theory. In the chapter, he talked of Lavoisier's and Thompson's work, but still there was no treatment of naming organic compounds, a topic which will likely occupy a different episode. At this time, often the new inorganic compounds were named after the person who discovered them. We've heard of Glauber's salt from the 1600s, but by the 19th century, you had Fischer's salt, Erdmann's salt, Vauquelin's salt, Cleve's salt, Zeiss's salt, and gemelins salt. The inorganic compounds grew in complexity, especially with the discovery of coordination compounds, and they require special wording. In the mid-19th century, a custom grew to include the color of the salt as part of the name. So you might have bromo-purpureo-cobalt, or Tetramin roseo cobalt, with all sorts of Latin prefixes for colors. The custom continued for a full century, with the final notations in published literature by 1966, except for a single reference in 2017. The term coordination complex, including the word complex, seems to date from 1894 in one of Danish chemist Sophus Jorgensen's articles. Modern naming of coordination complexes began with Alfred Werner in the late 1890s, and he continued to update his scheme through 1920. To do this, you name the complexes first by their ligands in alphabetical order, then the metal's name, then the oxidation state a more modern way of expressing valence. For the anionic negative ligands, instead of the "-ide suffix, you use the suffix "-o". For example, fluoro, cyano, hydroxo, sulfato. For neutral ligands, uncharged, you use their existing name, except for special ones like aqua for water, carbonyl for carbon monoxide, and amine with two M's for ammonia. The metals in the center of the complex have the suffix "-ate", so ferrate for iron, cuprate for copper, stanate for tin, using their Latin names. You also need to add the numbers of the ligands in Greek prefixes. An example is, what do you call the complex cation, CrCl2H2O times 4, with a positive charge? Tetra aqua dichlorochromium 3 ion, because there are four water ligands, two chlorine ligands, and a central chromium atom with an oxidation state of 3. Not until 1962 do we find a complete standalone history of nomenclature with Maurice Crossland's Historical Studies in the Language of Chemistry. Ron Ede published in 1964 another history of chemistry with some discussion of inorganic naming. There are many proposals that never garnered serious interest or widespread usage. William Jensen, in his Documenting the History of Chemical Nomenclature and Symbolism, gives the example of names for iron oxides. Lavoisier and his pals in 1787 offered the color scheme to distinguish iron oxides. So, they called one compound red oxide of iron, and the other black oxide of iron. That never really took hold. I did mention Thompson's protoxide, dutoxide, and tritoxide, which never caught on except for the per- prefix in names like peroxide. The American-German chemist Arthur Rosenheim, with J. Koppel, created a system around 1909, which called the two forms of iron with oxygen iron oxide and two-iron-three-oxide, and that is closer to what we have but still not used today. One that is definitely used today was originally created by German chemist Alfred Stock in 1919. The stock system includes the oxidation state after the element, which has multiple possibilities. Again, I haven't formally defined oxidation state, but we can say it's a modern version of valence. So, for the two forms of iron, you'd say iron 2 oxide and iron 3 oxide, where the 2 or 3 are Roman numerals inside parentheses. This tells us that the first compound has iron with a valence of 2, and automatically oxygen is 2, so we know that there is one iron for every oxygen atom. The second compound is iron with a valence of 3, so to get a neutral compound, and oxygen always has valence 2, we need two positive irons to balance out three negative oxygens. You may have done this manipulation in a fundamental chemistry class in high school. By the 1920s, the IUPAC was formed, and the Committee on Inorganic Nomenclature was working on this problem the Werner method versus the Stock system. Given that Germany was banned from IUPAC for the 1920s, Germany itself shifted largely toward the Stock system. IUPAC instead instituted another formal method in 1940 using numerical prefixes. So for iron oxide, you can say iron oxide versus di-iron trioxide, that is, two irons and three oxygens. IUPAC, now the definitive namer of compounds, has updated its rules as more and new compounds are discovered, isolated, and given molecular structures. The naming conventions from 1940 were updated in 1957, 1971, 1990, 2001, and 2005. So far, we have seen that chemical nomenclature is an ideal, supposedly telling us exactly the composition of each unique compound. An example from IUPAC's own rules lists legitimate names as both calcium phosphide and tricalcium diphosphide, Iron trichloride and iron 3-chloride are both fine. Therefore, we certainly haven't reached that point yet. The common names of chemicals like ammonia and water do not tell us what they consist of. Really, ammonia should be called azane, an analogy to methane with four hydrogens attached to a carbon atom. Ammonia has three hydrogens attached to a nitrogen atom. Likewise, water should be oxidane, two hydrogens attached to one oxygen atom, but these are never ever used. You are just supposed to know the composition. But the point here is that chemists have specific names for chemicals. They are designed to tell us what the chemical is made of, even if the system is imperfect so far. For large molecules, the name will naturally be longer and more complicated, And such complication has zero to do with the compound's safety or whether it's natural. Linking a long name to unhealthfulness is pure pseudoscience. As to organic nomenclature, that we will take up in a future episode. We will find more such peculiar non-standard names in the organic world. In our next episode, we sit squarely in the 1970s with new and improved polymers. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.